Okay, good morning. If we've not met before, my name is Matt, and this is my beautiful wife, Phil. Um, together, we are part of the leadership team here at Real Life Church, which is an absolute privilege, and I'm also one of the three elders. Uh, we've got two wonderful children, Delta and Blue, who are out in the kids' work. Okay, so today marks the beginning of our Real Life Christmas series. Like it. Well done. Nice. <laughs> and whether you're already hanging up your stockings on the wall or you prefer to wait to celebrate until there's only one more sleep till Christmas left, you cannot deny that the most wonderful time of the year is here. If you are new to Real Life Church or this is your first festive season with us, there are two important things you need to know about us. One. Although it's been said many times, many ways... We are a people who love Jesus above all else. And number two. We are a people who really love Christmas. Can you tell? We are particularly excited because we've been given the brilliant task of kicking off the Christmas series. And for those of you who know us well, you'll know that we love this season. I love it so much that I wish it could be Christmas every day. <laughs> nice. Me too. I love carols and mince pies and glitter and fairy lights and Santa. Baby, focus. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> when we were asked to talk today, we were so excited that our two hearts were thrilling. In spite of the chilling weather. weather. It gets worse. <laughs> anyway, our Christmas series this year is entitled A Christmas Carol. And through it, we will look at three famous carols in the context of the biblical accounts of the birth and the person of Jesus. A Christmas Carol is a book written by Charles Dickens. It was first published in 1843, and Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in a time when the British were re-evaluating Christmas traditions, including Yuletide carols. Being sung by a choir. And the newer traditions, such as the oh. Christmas tree. The book was published on the 19th of December and the first edition was sold out by Christmas Eve. It captured the spirit of the mid-Victorian revival of the Christmas holiday. Dickens' partners in reviving Christmas included Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and much of how we celebrate today is down to these three. So our Christmas series will aim to revive and breathe, breathe life into some of the carols that we sing and the true meaning of Christmas, following the footsteps of Dickens, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, looking at the birth of Jesus, knowing who Jesus is and responding to this wonderful truth. We will also have our youth and children singing Christian rhymes following the same series. So today, oh come all ye faithful. Next week, um, Jeremy and Becky, joy to the world. And then in week three, which is our uh, Christmas carol service on the 15th at 4 p.m., Stuart and Melanie will be harking the Herald Angels. The look and feel of our real-life church Christmas will be very traditional, a traditional Victorian Christmas, a nod to Dickens and to the true meaning of Christmas. So, while the weather outside is frightful, although the snow may not be falling all around, we will be in here spending the next three weeks looking back to a long time ago in Bethlehem. So the Holy Bible say. Looking at the incredible story of our God coming down to earth. So even if you don't want a lot for Christmas, you are definitely going to want to be here for this series. And although Santa Claus may not be coming to town, Jesus most certainly is. So sit back, grab your hot drink and your Bible, ask Jesus to speak the beautiful truth of this story deep into your hearts this season. 
because real life church, it's, it's beginning, beginning to, to look, look a lot like Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> yes, we did it. Here we go, right. Okay, so this morning is all about O Come Were You Faithful, and here are 10 facts about this much-loved carol. Number one. We're not going to alternate all the way through, by the way, just to no, throw that out. <laughs> it was originally written in Latin and called Adeste Fidelis. Number two. It was composed in 1744 and published in 1751. Number three. It has various authors, including John Francis Wade, John Redding, King John IV of Portugal, and some anonymous monks. Num- oh, that's you. Number four. The earliest printed version of it was by John Wade, who was a copier of musical manuscripts, so it's actually unclear as to whether he wrote the song or just signed his name onto the manuscript. Number five. The earliest manuscript was by King John IV of Portugal. In fact, the carol was also known as the Portuguese hymn. Six. It was translated into English by Frederick Oakley, who was a Catholic priest in 1841. Number seven. The original Wade version had four verses, but but Oakley added an extra three verses in Latin, which someone else had to then translate into English again later on. Eight. It was first published in English in Murray's Hymnal in 1852 under the slightly different title of Ye Faithful Approach Ye. Number nine. The modern version that we sing was written by David Wilcox in 1961. It is number 21 on the Spotify Most Covered Christmas Songs Ever chart list. 10. It has been covered by many different artists over the years, including Art Garfunkel, Lionel Richie, Frank Sinatra, Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, and Elvis. Okay, thank you, honey. So we're going to be looking today at Oh Come Were You Faithful, and we're also going to look at two um, accounts around Jesus' birth in the Bible. So the first one I'm going to read is from Luke 2. And it should appear behind me. It says in verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today... In the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. And the second passage we're going to look at is Matthew 2, 1 to 12. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that same time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? 
In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star had, been, had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Apologies, I can't keep it on any longer. Okay, so we're going to look at three um, groups um, that worship Jesus in this passage. And the first one we're going to look at is the angels. So, who are the angels? So, angels were created before the creation of the earth. We don't know exactly when, but we know from um, Job 38 that they witnessed the creation event. They watched God breathe life into the world that we know, and they praised him for the beauty and majesty of his work. They were created to worship God and do his bidding for the church. This was their purpose. This is their purpose, their calling, and they do it with great joy. If you don't believe me, Job 38, all the angels shouted for joy. Luke 15, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Hebrews 12, countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. And Luke 2, where we are today, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God, saying glory to God in the highest. The description in Revelation describes the worship as having trumpet blasts and angels giving glory and honor and thanks to the one who is sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and a mighty chorus. It continues with beautiful descriptions of the citizens of heaven, those that live in heaven and have been worshipped in Jesus since the beginning of time. We see a glimpse of the most exuberant exaltation and wonderfully orchestrated worship of Jesus on the throne. Okay, and they worship Jesus for who he is. And this is really important. They were created before the earth, so they got to watch the creation story. They've known Jesus for all this time. And they praise him about him, who he is and his character. Glory to God in the highest. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. Wisdom and strength. The one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. They attribute truth and greatness to God because they know him so well. They had known and watched him for all this time. They understood his power, his love, his wonderful plans for salvation, his holiness, his majesty, his place as the king of the angels, the king of heaven, and the king of kings. And their worship varies. It includes singing. It includes playing music. It includes physical acts. They bowed down before the throne. They took off their crowns and placed them at his feet. Okay, and in our society, I think sometimes we look at some of these uh, creative things as, as not the most strong images of who people are. We can kind of talk about creative types, um, which might not be kind of that stereotypical power. Now, I, I disagree completely, but I'm just saying some people might think like this. 
Um, but when we look at the angels, you know, the, these are not um, weak supernatural beings. They are strong. They are pillars of strength. We've got Kings 2, when Hezekiah sinks the Lord to help save his people, God sent one angel. And in one night, one angel defeated 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. In Revelation, it describes, um, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. I dare you to kind of look at these angels in their beautiful worship of singing and playing and bowing um, before the throne and say they're not a picture of strength because they were. They were mighty, mighty, mighty beings. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, it names the angels as warriors of light. We like that one, warriors of light. They were strong and still they sang, they played and they bowed down. And here at the birth of Jesus which is such an important time in history, we don't just get one angel. So quite often throughout the Bible, one or a small group of angels appear. Um, But at this point, and there aren't many points like this in the Bible, we get the heavenly host. We get the choir of angels. We get get God's A-team. We get his worshippers extreme, the most exuberant, the the people that know Jesus the best. We, We get the best worship, which signifies the importance of this event. That, that choir, that army of angels will come again when Jesus returns. And it's these pivotal points in history when we see these great choirs. And if we're not sure what a choir of angels looks like, try to picture this. In Revelation, again, it describes the host of angels as thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. Their presence on earth, coupled with the magnitude of this host, just shows what a monumental occasion the birth of Jesus was, pivotal in history. Heaven had come to earth. Jesus' birth had brought the glory of God into the darkness of earthly life. Okay? So we're looking at these angels, these strong warriors of worship, who were created to worship God. And we look at ourselves and say, we were also created to bring glory to God and to worship Jesus. That is our purpose. That is our calling. It is what we were made to do. It says in Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It is who we are as well. And actually, when we are doing what we were created to do, it's going to resonate in us. It's going to make us most fulfilled. We're going to be operating in the way that God intended us to. So when we look at the angels who were created to worship Jesus, we look at ourselves who were worship, uh, created to worship Jesus, apologies, uh, it resonates in us when that worship comes out. So it is a good thing to do. It is a strong thing. It is a powerful thing to do, and it brings glory to God in the highest. And we can learn this from the angels. They knew God since before creation. So as we get to know Jesus more and more, our worship should grow. The more we know, the more we want to worship him. The more there is to celebrate, to sing about, to shout about, to pray about, we need to know Jesus. So the message, part of the message we're taking from the angels is we want to know Jesus more. We want to pursue him. We want to read our Bibles. We want to read books like those great books that Melanie gave out this morning. We want to pray more. We want to listen to him more. 
We want to seek his character, his love, his power. And the more we know, the more that praise will flow out of us. Joyful, exuberant praise. Pointing people to Jesus, coming together at times of great celebration. Singing, playing, stating truth, reading scripture. Because we know that when you know Jesus, the only fitting response is to worship. So our challenge as we move on from the angels is, or our challenge for you really, is to sing out, to pray out, to read scripture out, shout the truth, speak the truth, sing the truth, tell others about Jesus, and join in with the worship when we come together. And and we know sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes you come to church, to a prayer meeting, to life group, to your own quiet times, and you're just not quite feeling in the mood or the place. But the encouragement is this, to make a decision. And the decision is quite simple. The decision is to speak out truth about Jesus. That's what we were created to do. And that's when we are fulfilling our calling in life. So I'd encourage you to make that decision and say, oh, I'm just not feeling it today. But you know what? God is the same. Same as he always was, same as he is today, same as he will be forever. So I want to encourage you to get to know Jesus more, to think. Do you love Jesus more today than you did last week? Do you love Jesus more today than you did last month, last year, in the last 10 years? If I loved Phil today in the same way that I loved her 16 years ago when we got married, I don't think I'd be invested in our relationship enough. If I only knew what I knew about Phil 16 years ago today, I think, to be honest, our marriage would be quite boring. It would be quite stale. It wouldn't be exuberant and joyful. But I've worked hard to get to know Phil more, to get to know each other. And in the same way with Jesus, we need to work on that relationship to seek him, to get to know him more. Then the exuberance, the joy, the passion um, will come out flowing. So I just want to close this bit by saying if you've stopped getting to know Jesus and you've not really invested in that relationship at the moment, I want to encourage you over this season of Christmas in particular to draw closer and to really work on that relationship. The angels know Jesus. They have done so since before the creation of this world and their response is to worship. So the more we know Jesus, the only fitting response is to worship. Okay, the next group of people we see in this story are the shepherds. Now, despite some of Israel's great heroes being shepherds, you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the time of the Christmas story, the shepherds were regarded as society's outcasts. They were despised in the ancient world as thieving vagabonds, and in a court of law, their testimony was regarded as unreliable. Basically, they were night shift slaves. They lived in the fields owned by the rich men who would have been at home tucked up in their beds while the shepherds sat out in the cold watching over their flocks. Now, these shepherds that we read about in the Christmas story may have been the shepherds who looked after and supplied the lambs for the temple sacrifices performed for the forgiveness of sins, which is obviously fairly significant in the context of the whole salvation story. They spent most of their years outdoors as flocks were kept this way from April to November and during the winter months. And during these months, the sheep were often susceptible to all sorts of trouble. Now, the type of sheep they looked after, apparently, were called fat-tailed sheep, which was a breed that often had their lambs in the autumn and the winter as well. And so for these reasons, the shepherds rarely left their sheep, being constantly on guard duty. So we move to this special night. In the middle of an ordinary night shift on the mountainside, a most extraordinary thing happens. The sky suddenly floods with light so bright it takes the shepherds time to adjust their eyes and be able to see before them something they have never seen before. 
something so mighty, so huge, so otherworldly, that fear is their only natural reaction. They suddenly find themselves surrounded by the power and the presence of the almighty God. But at the simple angelic command of do not be afraid, the fear shifts to wonder. Intrigue and excitement builds as the good tidings of great joy are proclaimed from the heavens themselves. Once the shepherds have heard the message of the angels, they leave the flock that they've been so diligently looking after and they run. Run away from the fields, through the streets of Bethlehem, all the way to a tumble-down stable until at last they see with their own eyes the miracle that has been told to them. They see the newborn baby, the king of heaven, wrapped in earthly swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And they fall down on their knees and they worship him. Because when you meet Jesus for the first time, the only fitting response is to worship. On the way back to their flocks, they are singing and dancing and shouting and screaming out the good news of God's salvation story. They had just met in person the king of the Jews, the savior of the world, the prince of heaven. There was no way on earth they were going to keep this to themselves. No way they could. They spread the good news and they led the neighborhood in worship as they headed back to their fields. Now, when the shepherds heard the word from the angels, they had no proof of what the angels said. They had to go and see for themselves. They had to prove their faith with their feet. Their response to the gospel message required action, as does ours. When we sing, O come, all ye faithful, the word come is an active verb. It requires a decision and an action on our part. We are called to come to Bethlehem, come to the manger, come to Jesus and see him for, us, for ourselves. The act of worship is active. We cannot sit back and passively absorb all the worship around us by osmosis and pass it off as our own. We are called to act, to respond, to go. And as we saw with the shepherds, when you've met Jesus for yourself, the only possible response you can have is one of worship. If when you think of Jesus, you don't have the desire to worship him, begin to well up in you and overflow, I'd love to pray for you. Or, or please grab someone around you, someone you know at the end. It, I would love to pray and see people praying for us for that desire to worship Jesus build up. So if that is you, please don't go away today still feeling a bit dry. Come and grab someone. We'd love to pray with you. Now, the shepherds were social outcasts. They weren't the rich and the privileged and the favored. By sending his army of angels to tell of the birth of his son to the shepherds first, God is privileging the poor. Salvation is a reversal of the social status quo. As prophesied by Mary in Luke 1.51 where she sings, he has scattered those who are proud. Something that characterized Jesus' ministry was that he redeemed the marginalized, the poor, the outcasts. And this happening at his birth shows that it is core to his very being. Jesus' very existence turned the tables on the inequality of the world. We are all equal in God. When we come to worship him, we stand next to each other on the same platform. The shepherds left their flock to go and worship Jesus. We saw earlier why it was so important that they stayed with the sheep to guard them. So to suddenly down tools and run off into the night seems a bit foolish. When we are truly captivated by Jesus, we will do things that to the rest of the world may seem a bit foolish group singing, giving 10% of our money away each month, standing in the rain, making sparkly Christmas baubles with kids all around us. But when we make our sacrifices of praise, whatever form they take, there are always wonderful outcomes in the kingdom. The shepherds heard the good news of the Christ child being born and they responded in worship. They worshipped him when they left everything they had to find Jesus. They worshipped when they obeyed the angels and ran to be where Jesus was. They worshipped when they told everyone around them who they had found. And they worshipped when they joined with the heavenly host, giving all glory to God in the highest. 
So how do we follow the example of the shepherds? Well, for the shepherds on that incredible night, their priorities changed. They suddenly left their flock behind that they had spent their whole careers, possibly their whole lives watching, and they ran to the stable, to the Lord. Jesus suddenly shot to the top of their priority list, and as a result of this, they were filled with overflowing joy. When we put Jesus at the top of our priority list, when we put him above all else, and when we dedicate our lives to following heaven's call, great joy follows. Not always great ease, and not always great happiness, but definitely great joy. So let me ask you, where's Jesus in your priority list today? Is he buried underneath work, hobbies, pursuits, friends, family, or is he sitting in his rightful place at the very top? The shepherds worshipped because they met Jesus. And when we meet Jesus, the only fitting response is to worship. Thanks, Hannah. Okay, and lastly, we come to the Magi, the wise men. And when, when we look at the Magi, they are surrounded by so many myths and traditions that aren't actually given to us or explained in the Bible. We three kings of Orientar. Why three? Why on camels, by taxi, or by car? We, we don't know how many there were, how they traveled, exactly who they were, or by name, or the court they had come from. So we need to look at the Old Testament and look at the Magi, look at these wise men and say, who were they and where have they come from? So the Magi were the most powerful and prominent group of advisors in the Babylonian Empire in the East. They were the highest ranking officials. They were court magicians, dream interpreters, sorcerers. They were involved in occult practices, astronomers, astrologers, wise counselors. They worshipped different gods. Part of their role, which is really significant here, is they approved and crowned the kings and judges of their nation. So in this passage in Matthew 2, as they came to find the king of the Jews, they were coming to acknowledge his right to be crowned as the Messiah, the king and the saviour. Um, and the fact they were not Jewish also demonstrates that they understood that Jesus was the saviour of all people, not just the Jews. They'd travelled literally for years to be here and be part of this celebration. Okay, and if we want to know more about the Magi, we could look at different passages like Daniel. So Daniel, um, when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he was appointed above the wise men in Babylon. It says... The king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chiefs over all his wise men. So when I was reading this through with my daughter Delta, and we were saying, well, how did the wise men know about the Messiah? They've come from Babylon, they've come from all these different practices, but actually... Going back in history, these are the same sort of tribes of wise men um, that lived with Daniel. Daniel was appointed ruler over them um, in, in that place in Babylon. And we know from Daniel, don't we? Daniel wasn't going to sit around and not talk about God. Agreed? Daniel was the kind of person to speak his mind, to teach others. We read that in the scriptures as well. So um, some of that truth is going to come from Daniel's time in Babylon um, a lot of the um, 
Jews actually remained in Babylon. They, they married the locals, they stayed there, and they became part of that community. So it's when these guys, these people come from the east, um, there, is, there is some knowledge there about the Messiah and about um, this coming king. Now, we don't know exactly, again, how they knew about the birth of Jesus. A star rose, we know. Um, they knew it belonged to Jesus, the king of the Jews. We saw his star as it rose. And they knew it showed them where he was. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And we know from verse 10 that God spoke to them sometimes through their dreams. Um, So maybe this is how they knew. We don't know. We don't know. But what do we know about this situation is that God was in control. God was calling the Magi to come and worship at the throne of the King of the Jews, the King of Kings, the King of all people. Who else, who else could cause a star to move and show a location on earth? I don't know how he did it, but I know that God did it. And it's the who, not the how, that I think matters in this case. He used the star to show that he was in full control, that he was calling people to worship Jesus. And he still does this today. He goes to great lengths to call us to worship Jesus. He's acted in all our lives. He's done things in our lives, put us in places and positions where we have come to know Jesus. He has pursued us and he has directed and guided us to the throne of Jesus so that we can worship. I've not followed a star, but I can look back in my life and say, oh, that's where God, that's where God was leading me. So, so why did they follow it? Well, When they discovered the Messiah had been born, they wanted to go to him and worship. Again, I think this implies there is some knowledge there of who the Messiah is and was and what he was going to do. They learned the truth about Jesus, however it came. And their only response was to go, to follow him, and to give him beautiful gifts, the best of what they had. And as they did so, they were filled with joy. Okay? And their gifts also imply a knowledge of who Jesus is. Gold for a king, frankincense for deity, myrrh for his future death and burial. Again, I don't know, we don't know if God told them to bring those. We're not entirely sure if they made that choice and God just used that as a picture. God's in control of the situation. That's what matters. We know, however it happened, whoever chose those gifts, whether it was them or they were told to, it points to who Jesus is again. A king. He is one true God. He is our saviour and he will die in our place, or he did die in our place as the ultimate and final sacrificial lamb. It's the who, it's the person of Jesus that matters here, not necessarily the how. God was in control. And then they saw the star and they were filled with joy. They entered the house, they saw the child, they saw Jesus with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped So how did they worship? They addressed Jesus as the king of the Jews. They ascribed authority. What we said before about reading out, calling out the truth about who Jesus is. Like the angels did, singing glory to God in the highest. They fell to the ground. Again, we talked about the angels bowing down, taking off their thrones, uh, taking off their crowns, placing them at his feet, ascribing dignity and authority. Jesus, you are high. You are on the throne. I am low. And they rejoiced with great joy. Not just joy, but great joy. 
exceedingly with great joy. In fact, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's four statements in here about how wonderful and how large their, their joy was in this compelling situation. And lastly, they gave their sacrificial gifts, the best and the most expensive. But they also gave their time. They had left their high-ranking positions to come and give Jesus years of their lives, literally as they traveled to his birthplace, and they gave him these highly valuable gifts. They risked their lives, in fact, to come and worship. Herod wanted them killed. By giving God our best, we show how important he is to us. He shows that we value and treasure God above all things. We've said again, when you know who Jesus is, who we are worshipping, the only fitting response is to worship. When they saw Jesus, when we see Jesus, the only fitting response is to worship. So a few examples of how we might translate that. Perhaps, perhaps we are going to travel for years, maybe, across the country. But what can we do? Well, we can ascribe authority and dignity with our mouths and our actions. I'll say that again. Ascribe authority and dignity with our mouths and actions. What do I mean? We sing truth. We speak truth from the Bible, from our knowledge of God. We declare God's supremacy over all creation. We bow down before him. You are God. I am here on earth. You are high. I am low telling stories of what God has done. That's why we share stories. It ascribes authority and power to our king. That's why we love to share stories of what God is doing in the lives of the people in our church and around us. We can point people to Jesus, tell them the good news. We can repent, acknowledge our need for forgiveness and accepting this. Shows our dependence on God, declaring our need for a king and savior. We can bow down and we can trust in him and follow his ways. Practically, we can show acts of love. I think as a church, as a community, we are good at this, giving up time for others, but also giving up time to pray, to listen to people, to listen to God, to care and help for others, taking food to those that need it, giving up time for Jesus, to pray, to read, to wait, to worship, giving up our money or possessions for Jesus, that our tithe, giving to those in need, giving to bless others. So many ways we can show the authority of Jesus and our place of worshipping him high in the heavens. When you know who Jesus is, the only response is to worship. When you see Jesus, the only response is to worship. Okay, so what do we do now with all that? We've looked at the three of the most famous groups of worshippers in the Christmas story. The supernatural warriors of light, the Christmas angels filling the skies with the good news of God and the praises of heaven. Their worship was an exuberant, extravagant exaltation of the King of Kings and it lit up the skies. The outcast vagabond shepherds who left everything they had and in obedience to the call of heaven ran to Jesus. And when they got there, they were so blown away by him that they had to spread his good news to everyone they met. They couldn't keep it in. And finally, the stately, wealthy, privileged magi from the foreign lands who sacrificed their time, their money, their talents, and their reputations to pursue the one who is greater than all those things combined. When we look at these groups of worshippers, we're to look at them as examples. Examples of what it means to be totally captivated by Jesus to the point where we really are ready and willing to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. 
For everyone here, I really felt that one of those three examples will be standing out to you more than the other two. And that will be as God is calling you, challenging you, nudging you to examine your own worship life. So here's the challenge. Are you ready to follow the example of the Magi? Ready to give your gifts in worship of him? Are you worshipping him with your money? Tithing, giving to offerings, blessing others when you can see there is a need? Are you worshipping him with your talents, your gifts, your time? Are you serving in church? Are you using the skills he's blessed you with to bless others, to make a difference for his kingdom in your workplace, your neighborhood, your community? What do you have that you feel God is asking you to surrender over to him today? If you're not sure, ask him. He'll tell you. Are you ready to follow the example of the shepherds and leave all that you know behind in the pursuit of Christ? Are you so captivated by him that when you spill out of church on a Sunday morning or life group during the week or out of your own time spent with him, you just can't help but speak to the people in your life all about him? Does he fill your head, your heart, your conversation? Is there something he's called you to do and for whatever reason you've parked it for now? Put it to the back of your mind, to the bottom of your priority list. If there is, I believe he wants you to look at it again today and turn your not now into a yes. Because remember, when we put Jesus at the top of our priority list, all that comes out is unending joy. And finally, are you ready to follow the example of the angels? Constantly deepening your relationship with Jesus, constantly singing his praises. Are you soaking up truth? Are you immersing yourself in his word? Are you praising him in your home as well as when we meet together? Do you listen to worship songs at home? If not, can I please urge you to give them a try? When worship fills your house, people notice. Even if they don't know what it is they're sensing, friends and family do sense a difference when they walk into a home that is filled with the worship of Jesus. If you've walked with Jesus for many years, do you love him now more than you did at the beginning? Do you praise him more exuberantly? Do you love him more fiercely? So we as the faithful followers of Christ are called to come and worship. Come with joyful hearts, come and adore him, come and worship him triumphantly. Because when we know Jesus and accept him as Lord of our lives, we move to stand in the place of victory. When we sing, we sing in a place of triumph. We sing with worship songs that are joyful and triumphant. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit will stir up greater depths of worship within our hearts today. Holy Spirit, just come and do that now. I pray you will start to stir up deeper heart cries, deeper songs, just a desire to go deeper with you, Lord God. Jesus. Yeah, let's stand together. Holy Spirit, I just pray you'll come now and stir up deeper worship. Deeper worship, a desire to love you and to praise you and to sing to you. Lord, I pray you will come and captivate each and every one of us afresh today. That you will turn our eyes and our hearts towards Jesus. And I pray we will have fresh revelation of the greatness of our King. If that's something you want, just lift your hands out to God. If you want to go deeper with Jesus. Oh, 
Because when we look into the manger and we see Emmanuel there, when we meet Jesus for the first time, the only fitting response is to worship. When we see our Saviour on the cross giving his very life to save ours, our only fitting response is to worship. And when we look into heaven and we see the King of angels seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, our only possible response is to worship. When we know Jesus, who he truly is, our only possible fitting response is to worship.